Chapters 1 and 2 of Omu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Omu, a narrative of adventures in the South Seas by Herman Melville. Chapter 1. My reception aboard. It was the middle of a bright tropical afternoon that we made good our escape from the bay. The vessel we sought lay with her main topsail aback about a league from the land, and was the only object that broke the broad expanse of the ocean. In approaching, she turned out to be a small, slatternly-looking craft, her hull and spars a dingy black, rigging all slack and bleached nearly white, and everything denoting an ill state of affairs aboard. The four boats hanging from her sides proclaimed her a whaler. Leaning carelessly over the bulwarks were the sailors, wild, haggard-looking fellows in scotch caps and faded blue frocks, some of them with cheeks of a mottled bronze, to which sickness soon changes the rich berry brown of a seaman's complexion in the tropics. On the quarter-deck was one whom I took for the chief mate. He wore a broad-brimmed Panama hat, and his spy-glass was leveled as we advanced. When we came alongside, a low cry ran fore and aft the deck, and everybody gazed at us with inquiring eyes. And well they might. To say nothing of the savage boat's crew, panting with excitement, all gesture and vociferation, my own appearance was calculated to excite curiosity. A robe of the native cloth was thrown over my shoulders, my hair and beard were uncut, and I betrayed other evidences of my recent adventure. Immediately on gaining the deck, they beset me on all sides with questions, the half of which I could not answer, so incessantly were they put. As an instance of the curious coincidences which often befall the sailor, I must here mention that two countenances before me were familiar. One was that of an old man-of-war's man, whose acquaintance I had made in Rio de Janeiro, at which place touched the ship in which I sailed from home. The other was a young man whom, four years previous, I had frequently met in a sailor boarding-house in Liverpool. I remembered parting with him at Prince's Dock Gates, in the midst of a swarm of police officers, trackmen, stevedores, beggars, and the like. And here we were again. Years had rolled by, many a league of ocean had been traversed, and we were thrown together under circumstances which almost made me doubt my own existence." but a few moments passed ere I was sent for into the cabin by the captain. He was quite a young man, pale and slender, more like a sickly counting-house clerk than a bluff sea-captain. Bidding me be seated, he ordered the steward to hand me a glass of pisco. In the state I was, this stimulus almost made me delirious, so that of all I then went on to relate concerning my residence on the island, I can scarcely remember a word. After this, I was asked whether I desired to ship. Of course I said yes, that is, if he would allow me to enter for one cruise, engaging to discharge me, if I so desired, at the next port. In this way men are frequently shipped on board whalemen in the South Seas. My stipulation was acceded to, and the ship's articles handed me to sign. The mate was now called below, and charged to make a well man of me, not, let it be borne in mind, that the captain felt any great compassion for me, he only desired to have the benefit of my services as soon as possible. 
Helping me on deck, the mate stretched me out on the windlass and commenced examining my limb, and then doctoring it after a fashion with something from the medicine chest, rolled it up in a piece of an old sail, making so big a bundle that, with my feet resting on the windlass, I might have been taken for a sailor with the gout. While this was going on, someone removing my tappa cloak slipped on a blue frock in its place, and another, actuated by the same desire to make a civilized mortal of me, flourished about my head a great pair of sheep shears, to the eminent jeopardy of both ears, and the certain destruction of hair and beard. The day was now drawing to a close, and, as the land faded from my sight, I was all alive to the change in my condition. But how far short of our expectations is oftentimes the fulfillment of the most ardent hopes. Safe aboard of a ship, so long my earnest prayer, with home and friends once more in prospect, I nevertheless felt weighted down by a melancholy that could not be shaken off. It was the thought of never more seeing those who, notwithstanding their desire to retain me a captive, had, upon the whole, treated me so kindly. I was leaving them for ever. So unforeseen and sudden had been my escape, so excited had I been through it all, and so great the contrast between the luxurious repose of the valley and the wild noise and motion of a ship at sea, that at times my recent adventures had all the strangeness of a dream, and I could scarcely believe that the same sun now setting over a waste of waters had that very morning risen above the mountains and peered in upon me as I lay on my mat in Taipee. Going below into the forecastle just after dark, I was inducted into a wretched bunk or sleeping-box built over another. The rickety bottoms of both were spread with several pieces of a blanket. A battered tin can was then handed me, containing about half a pint of tea, so called by courtesy, though whether the juice of such stocks as one finds floating therein deserves that title, is a matter all ship-owners must settle with their consciences." A cube of salt beef, on a hard round biscuit by way of platter, was also handed up, and without more ado I made a meal, the salt flavor of which, after the Nebuchadnezzar fare of the valley, was positively delicious. While thus engaged, an old sailor on a chest just under me was puffing out volumes of tobacco smoke. My supper finished, he brushed the stem of his sooty pipe against the sleeve of his frock, and politely waved it toward me. The attention was sailor-like. As for the nicety of the thing, no man who has lived in forecastles is at all fastidious. And so, after a few vigorous whiffs to induce repose, I turned over and tried my best to forget myself. But in vain. My crib, instead of extending fore and aft, as it should have done, was placed athwart ships, that is, at right angles to the keel, and the vessel, being before the wind, rolled to such a degree, that every time my heels went up and my head went down, I thought I was on the point of turning a somerset. Beside this, there were also more annoying causes of inquietude, and every once in a while a splash of water came down the open scuttle and flung the spray in my face. At last, after a sleepless night, broken twice by the merciless call of the watch, a peep of daylight struggled into view from above, and someone came below. It was my old friend with the pipe. Here, shipmate, said I, help me out of this place and let me go on deck. 
Halloaw, who's that croaking? was the rejoinder, as he peered into the obscurity where I lay. A Typee, my king of the cannibals, is that you? But I say, my lad, how's that spar of yourn? The mate says it's in a devil of a way, and last night set the steward to sharpening the handsaw. Hope he won't have the carving of ye. Long before daylight we arrived off the bay of Nukuhiva, and making short tacks till morning, we then ran in and sent a boat ashore with the natives who had brought me to the ship. Upon its return we made sail again and stood off from the land. There was a fine breeze, and notwithstanding my bad night's rest, the cool fresh air of a morning at sea was so bracing that, as soon as I breathed it, my spirits rose at once. Seated upon the windlass the greater portion of the day, and chatting freely with the men, I learned the history of the voyage thus far, and everything respecting the ship and its present condition. These matters I will now throw together in the next chapter. CHAPTER Two, SOME ACCOUNT OF THE SHIP First and foremost, I must give some account of the Julia herself, or Little Jewel, as the sailors familiarly styled her. She was a small bark of a beautiful model, something more than two hundred tons, Yankee-built, and very old. Fitted for a privateer out of a New England port during the War of 1812, she had been captured at sea by a British cruiser, and, after seeing all sorts of service, was at last employed as a government packet in the Australian seas. Being condemned, however, about two years previous, she was purchased at auction by a house in Sydney, who, after some slight repairs, dispatched her on the present voyage. Notwithstanding the repairs, she was still in a miserable plight. The lower masts were said to be unsound, the standing rigging was much worn, and in some places even the bulwarks were quite rotten. Still, she was tolerably tight, and but little more than the ordinary pumping of a morning served to keep her free. But all this had nothing to do with her sailing. At that, brave little Jewel, plump little Jewel, was a witch. Blow high or blow low, she was always ready for the breeze, and when she dashed the waves from her prow and pranced and pawed the sea, you never thought of her patched sails and blistered hull. How the fleet creature would fly before the wind, rolling now and then, to be sure, but in very playfulness. Sailing to windward, no gale could bow her over. With spars erect, she looked right up into the wind's eye, and so she went. But after all, little Jewel was not to be confided in. Lively enough and playful she was, but on that very account the more to be distrusted. Who knew, but that like some vivacious old mortal, all at once sinking into a decline, she might, some dark night, spring a leak and carry us all to the bottom. However, she played us no such ugly trick, and therefore I wrong little jewel in supposing it. She had a free, roving commission. According to her papers, she might go whither she pleased, whaling, sealing, or anything else. Sperm whaling, however, was what she relied upon, though as yet only two fish had been brought alongside. The day they sailed out of Sydney Heads, the ship's company, all told, numbered some thirty-two souls. Now they mustered about twenty. The rest had deserted. Even the three junior mates who had headed the whaleboats were gone. And of the four harpooners, only one was left, 
a wild New Zealander, or Maori, as his countrymen were more commonly called in the Pacific. But this was not all. More than half the seamen remaining were more or less unwell from a long sojourn in a dissipated port, some of them wholly unfit for duty, one or two dangerously ill, and the rest managing to stand their watch, though they could do but little. The captain was a young cockney, who, a few years before, had emigrated to Australia, and by some favoritism or other had procured the command of the vessel, though in no wise competent. He was essentially a landsman, and though a man of education, no more meant for the sea than a hairdresser. Hence everybody made fun of him. They called him the cabin boy, or paper jack, and half a dozen other undignified names. In truth, the men made no secret of the derision in which they held him, and as for the slender gentleman himself, he knew it all very well, and bore himself with becoming meekness. Holding as little intercourse with them as possible, he left everything to the chief mate, who, as the story went, had been given his captain in charge. Yet, despite his apparent unobtrusiveness, the silent captain had more to do with the men than they thought. In short, although one of your sheepish-looking fellows, he had a sort of still, timid cunning, which no one would have suspected, and which, for that very reason, was all the more active. So the bluff mate, who always thought he did what he pleased, was occasionally made a tool of, and some obnoxious measures which he carried out, in spite of all growlings, were little thought to originate with the dapper little fellow in nanking jacket and white canvas pumps. But, to all appearance at least, the mate had everything his own way. Indeed, in most things this was actually the case, and it was quite plain that the captain stood in awe of him. So far as courage, seamanship, and a natural aptitude for keeping riotous spirits in subjection were concerned, no man was better qualified for his vocation than John German. He was the very beau ideal of the efficient race of short, thick-set men. His hair curled in little rings of iron-gray all over his round bullet head. As for his countenance, it was strongly marked, deeply pitted with the smallpox. For the rest, there was a fierce little squint out of one eye. The nose had a rakish twist to one side, while his large mouth and great white teeth looked absolutely sharkish when he laughed. In a word, no one, after getting a fair look at him, would ever think of improving the shape of his nose, wanting in symmetry if it was. Notwithstanding his pugnacious looks, however, German had a heart as big as a bullock's, that you saw at a glance. Such was our mate, but he had one failing. He abhorred all weak infusions, and cleaved manfully to strong drink. At all times he was more or less under the influence of it. Taken in moderate quantities, I believe in my soul, it did a man like him good, brightened his eyes, swept the cobwebs out of his brain, and regulated his pulse. But the worst of it was, that sometimes he drank too much, and a more obstreperous fellow than German in his cups you seldom came across. He was always for having a fight, but the very men he flogged loved him as a brother, for he had such an irresistibly good-natured way of knocking them down, that no one could find it in his heart to bear malice against him. So much for stout little German. All English whalemen are bound by law to carry a physician, who, of course, is rated a gentleman, and lives in the cabin, 
with nothing but his professional duties to attend to. But incidentally he drinks flip and plays cards with the captain. There was such a worthy aboard of the Julia, but, curious to tell, he lived in the forecastle with the men. And this was the way it happened. In the early part of the voyage the doctor and the captain lived together as pleasantly as could be. To say nothing of many a can they drank over the cabin transom, both of them had read books, and one of them had traveled, so their stories never flagged. But once on a time they got into a dispute about politics, and the doctor, moreover, getting into a rage, drove home an argument with his fist, and left the captain on the floor literally silenced. This was carrying it with a high hand, so he was shut up in his stateroom for ten days, and left to meditate on bread and water, and the impropriety of flying into a passion. Smarting under his disgrace, he undertook, a short time after his liberation, to leave the vessel clandestinely at one of the islands, but was brought back ignominiously and again shut up. Being set at large for the second time, he vowed he would not live any longer with the captain, and went forward with his chests among the sailors, where he was received with open arms as a good fellow and an injured man. I must give some further account of him, for he figures largely in this narrative. His early history, like that of many other heroes, was enveloped in the profoundest obscurity. Though he threw out hints of a patrimonial estate, a nabob uncle, and an unfortunate affair which sent him a-roving. All that was known, however, was this. He had gone out to Sydney as assistant surgeon of an emigrant ship. On his arrival there, he went back into the country, and after a few months' wanderings, returned to Sydney penniless, and entered as doctor aboard of the Julia. His personal appearance was remarkable. He was over six feet high, a tower of bones, with a complexion absolutely colorless, fair hair, and a light, unscrupulous gray eye, twinkling occasionally with the very devil of mischief. Among the crew he went by the name of the Long Doctor, or more frequently still, Dr. Longghost. And from whatever high estate Dr. Longghost might have fallen, he had certainly at some time or other spent money, drunk burgundy, and associated with gentlemen. As for his learning, he quoted Virgil and talked of Hobbes of Malmesbury, besides repeating poetry by the canto, especially Hudibras. He was, moreover, a man who had seen the world. In the easiest way imaginable, he would refer to an amour he had in Palermo, his lion-hunting before breakfast among the Caffres, and the quality of coffee to be drunk in Muscat. And about these places, and a hundred others, he had more anecdotes than I can tell of. Then such mellow old songs as he sang, in a voice so round and racy, the real juice of sound. How such notes came forth from his lank body was a constant marvel. Upon the whole, Longghost was as entertaining a companion as one could wish, and to me in the Julia, an absolute godsend. End of chapters 1 and 2 Recording by Tricia G.